when I try to do it first, it, it never seems to work. I always botch it somehow. So why don't you go ahead and, and do the thing? Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I am Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. We are back. Uh, we are continuing September of 1964. Yes. We are about to meet a villain named Hawkeye, the archer. Or I guess the marksman, what do they call him here? <laughs> they called him uh, the mystical marksman at the end of last issue. Not exactly very mystical. So this is Hawkeye. Let me just say right up front, I just have a general dislike of Archer comic book characters, period. Archer villains, Archer heroes. I just think that when you got people thrown around massive firepower, having a guy with a bow and arrow is an inherently lame thing whether it's one of the heroes or one of the villains. So I always have a mark against Hawkeye. I think that Hawkeye works as a Marvel character to the extent that he is inserting himself into things. I think that Hawkeye will eventually work as a member of the Avengers because no one ever invites him to join the Avengers. He just shows up one day, ties up Jarvis the butler, insists on joining the group, and is always just sort of shoehorning himself in. I really dislike the Hawkeye in the MCU, which is not based on the Marvel Universe Hawkeye. It's based on the Ultimate Universe Hawkeye as this guy with a wife and kid who is this grimly serious government agent dude who was assigned to the Avengers because Nick Fury thought they needed a archer on the team. Like, why on earth would they need an archer on the team? Like, this is not a serious thing. There's, there's never any good reason to have Hawkeye on the Avengers other than Hawkeye insisting to be on the Avengers. The Avengers deciding they needed to recruit Hawkeye to be on the team it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense in the Ultimates. It doesn't make sense in the MCU. It never makes sense. I was not a fan of Hawkeye's own series uh, on Disney+. Plus. It was fine. Haley Steinfeld was great. Tony Dalton is always great. But I just don't like Jeremy Renner's performance. So I have major Hawkeye feels. I have major Hawkeye issues. I am coming to this character with a lot of baggage. And so we are now going to introduce into this podcast for the first time, Hawkeye. Yes. Uh, and I have to say the Hawkeye TV show won me over. I wasn't quite sure what to think of it at first, but it won me over. But it's going to be a new holiday go-to thing. <laughs> 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 Very much a Christmas movie. We just see four images of Hawkeye looking like he's in action all around a picture of Iron Man flying at us on the cover. And it promises down at the bottom, watch the sparks fly when handsome Hawkeye teams up with the Black Widow. Iron Man rescues a factory worker in Stark's factory here. It's really a nice splash page. It's, you know, heck is, yeah, it is. is a lot of fun with Iron Man swooping in and rescuing this guy before a huge vat of molten slag can hit him. And I actually really like the rendering job he did on the cauldron or the crucible or whatever yes. you would call it. that's holding the molten metal in it. Uh, yeah. The texture that he made on that and sort of the chiaroscuro look is really nice. I like it. Happy then asks Iron Man, since he happens to be there, if Iron Man will ask Stark, to talk happy up to Pepper. Right? He, he wants to get to date with Pepper. Pepper isn't giving him the time of day. So maybe Iron Man can convince Stark to convince her to go out with happy. Okay, Seems like a little bit of a Rube Goldberg setup. Unless we just go with the idea that everybody knows that Stark is Iron Man. <laughs> which, which they seem to be going back direct. and forth on. So Stark tries to do this. But the way he phrases it. Pepper misunderstands and she cuts him off halfway through and it's like, yes, yes, I'll go out on a date with you. And then Happy is even more depressed than usual about this because his boss and supposed friend just betrayed him on this here. Tony doesn't want to take her out anywhere too romantic. He's afraid of getting romantically involved with her, presumably because of his health stuff. So he just takes her to Coney Island. Which, honestly, I think would be a fantastic date for that kind of thing. <laughs> so while they're there, Hawkeye is there in sort of frontiersman buckskin clothing, doing his marksman tricks with his arrows. And people are not really that interested. Somebody says, what a crummy act. He says, come on, get the bum off the stage and bring on the dancing girls. But then meanwhile, one of the rides starts to malfunction. Tony has to 
ditch Pepper with a terrible excuse, then change into Iron Man and go save these people. So Iron Man does so. Everyone's like, oh, wow, Iron Man's so great. Clint Barton gets jealous of all the attention that Iron Man's getting. He's like, what's he got that I don't? You know, I can do some stuff. He does a lot of inventing and a lot of engineering in order to come up not just with his costume, but with his trick arrows and all sorts of stuff like that. I guess on the top of page five, Heck is really doing a nice job with the look of the arrow tips of these high tech arrow tips. They look really kind of cool. And they're kind of like the coolest I would ever see Hawkeye's arrow tips look. Like usually they don't have these sort of Baroque stylings on them that they have here. I think they're promising a more fun character than we actually get. Well, I think that probably after he uses these first ones, he's like, man, do I want to have to make that sort of art <laughs> every time? I mean, each time I shoot one of these, they're gone. <laughs> a couple of things I'll point out about panel three on page five. First of all, Hawkeye looks like he's at least in his mid 30s there, probably yeah. more like in his 40s. They won't really keep that up as time goes on, uh, especially when. He and Captain America are together in the Avengers, and he's always making fun of Captain America for being an old man. If he was as old as he looks like here, then he would actually be quite a bit older physically than (laughs) Captain America at that point. Uh, So they don't really keep that up. The other thing is his speech balloon there saying, never again will people sneer at my, quote, performance uh, as he's standing in front of all of these vertical arrows with the arrow heads on them. Yes. <laughs> it's like, okay, that that had to have been deliberate, right? <laughs> right. So then we get to on page six, another classic no prize book panel. I don't know if they have recolored this for the version you are looking they at. They have not, because I had the same note that you're about to say. Hawkeye looking down at the city saying, what a thrill. I feel as though the destiny of the entire city below me is in my powerful gloved hands. And as they point out in the No Prize book, he is clearly not wearing gloves. He has never worn gloves. <laughs> he is. He will he eventually is. in the future. But yes, he has not worn gloves at this point. Yeah, I, that was my next note. Here was, he says powerful gloved hands, but I don't know about you. He doesn't look like he has gloves here. Oh, and by the way, I'll point out that up to this point, he is not planning on being a villain. He seems to be planning on being a hero. He's just like, oh, I like the attention that Iron Man gets. I'm going to go out and do this whole mask adventurer crime fighter thing too. Then I'll get that kind of attention. However, he's being very unclear as to whether or not he intends to be a hero or villain. And it's almost as if he himself is not even decided, but then he sees somebody stealing jewels. He shoots them with an arrow. He pins them. He's like, this is great. But then they run away. They leave. Well, I'll let you describe it, but it's almost as if he Like, he's like, I'm just going to go out there and maybe I'll be a hero. Maybe I'll be a villain. And then he decides to be a hero and then gets mistaken for a villain. And then that sets him on the path he's going to be on for the next couple issues, but not forever. Yeah, I guess I had just seen that he stopped the jewel thief and then seems to get mistaken as a villain. I sort of took that as an intention that he was going out initially to be a hero. But yeah, you're right. It is sort of ambiguous. And based on the earlier sequences we saw of him, it's really clear that it's really just the attention he's looking. (laughs) It doesn't really seem to be that important to him why he's getting the attention. The thief drops his bag of jewels. He is gone by the time the cops show up and only Hawkeye is there. And so they see this costumed dude wearing purple. And we all know that villains wear purple. They figure that he must be part of the jewel thieves. They chase him. He's running away. And then coincidence of coincidences, Black Widow happens to drive up and sees this masked man with a bow and arrow running through the street. And he, she thinks to herself, that man racing so swiftly, he might be what I'm looking for. Then she basically uh, picks him up in her ride <laughs> and he is immediately smitten and she's a bad guy. So therefore, he will now be a bad guy because he wants to be close to her. What was the purpose of her drive here? She's just driving around hoping she can spot some supervillains to recruit to her Soviet cause. Or is she even still working for the Soviet Union? Not exactly clear. Last time we heard, she was actually hiding from the Soviets because she had failed in a mission and knew that she was going to be killed if she returned. I believe that was still ongoing last time we uh, But we she says her. here, he must not learn that I am really a red spy. She seems to continue to think of herself as being in 
on the book spread spy. Just one that the other spies are probably wanting to kill. <laughs> yes. So she recruits him and he's like, look, lady, whatever you want me to do, I will do because you're hot and I'm a simple guy. So, <laughs> so she shares a lot of commie gadgets to put on his arrows, even though he had already gone and done a fair amount of engineering to come up with his guy wire arrow that he was able to swing up onto things with. Uh, she is able to give him higher technology stuff from the Soviets. And he's like, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, as long as it keeps me close to you, I don't care. So she asked him to take out Iron Man. So he just says, he's good as beaten, baby. So then he heads off to do so. So Tony Stark, meanwhile, feels bad about taking her on the Coney Island date. He is going to ask her out on a real date. So she tries to make Stark jealous as soon as he comes out to ask her by fawning over Happy and agreeing to go out on a date with him. So she's trying to make Stark jealous in this case. Of course, if she hadn't been doing that, she would have just gotten a nice romantic, expensive dinner date with, with Stark. Generally, if there's one moral lesson that Stanley wishes to instruct us all in, in his books, is that don't try to make someone jealous. It's really <laughs> a good way to screw everything up. I noticed that on panel three, page nine, Happy, even when he's jumping for joy, looks <laughs> utterly miserable. And usually, almost always, I love the way that Heck handles Happy and his facial expressions in particular. This one, though, he couldn't quite pull that off. No, he couldn't <laughs> nail it. <laughs> he's got no one to blame but himself because he's thinking it himself. Yeah, but I, I find it funny that he still looks miserable even when he's jumping for joy, but he didn't quite pull it off in the execution. Then we go back to Hawkeye. So Hawkeye breaks into Stark's factory. Iron Man comes out, tries to stop him. He hits Iron Man with rust arrows, which are, you know, kind of neat. Apparently, these are more of the uh, Soviet technology arrows here. He's starting to rust up to the point that he's actually afraid he's going to seize up and not be able to move. So he has to hide and start taking his armor off while Hawkeye is still looking for him. And he says that he's got a spare set of armor set elsewhere, which makes sense. I get right. that. Actually, one thing I didn't notice the first time reading through this, but I do now, on page 12, panel 2, top middle of the page, is Stark wearing a ring on his right ring finger that says S? Yeah. So he's wearing a Stark ring, I guess. <laughs> Seems uncharacteristically tacky for Tony Stark. So he gets a spare armor. He then stops the getaway car. Hawkeye and Black Widow are trying to get away. We're suddenly looking at, I guess it's because this is the spare armor, the repulsor rays are completely different. Instead of coming out of the palm of his hand, they're coming out of a little shooter that is on top of his fist. And it looks really cool. I like these new repulsor rays. They didn't go with this for the most part in the future. They'll continue to come out of the palm of his hand. But it's a nice little redesign here. I hadn't even thought about that, that these are, of course, replacement gloves that he's got on. And so, yeah, maybe he's experimenting with other designs for this stuff. Iron Man stops their getaway car. Iron Man and Hawkeye have a battle. They end up on a pier where I think they're going to try to get away on a boat. Iron Man ends up destroying the pier that Hawkeye is out on the end of. And he ends up dropping, well, not quite into the water. He catches himself on the piling of the now destroyed pier, which I'm sure would, you know, give him tons and tons of horrible, nasty splinters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then we've got a really weird panel of Iron Man flying over to him, bending the piling over at like almost a 45 degree angle and then releasing it with a big twang and Hawkeye flying out into the water. You know, once again, I know it's comic books, but, you know, sometimes there's just like, give me a little bit of uh, something to hang my suspension yes. of disbelief on. And that panel is not doing it for me. So then yeah. he goes off and rescues Hawkeye from drowning. He says at one point, oh, no, you don't. You can't escape me by drowning. You've got too much explaining to do. Iron Man thinks he has completely defeated Hawkeye and starts walking away. But then Hawkeye comes back to consciousness, grabs a blast arrow that he's got and shoots Iron Man from behind. But it glances off of Iron Man's armor. So it stuns him pretty badly, actually, but doesn't do any major damage to him. But the explosion also takes out Natasha, who was still nearby. So she is knocked unconscious. She says, uh, Hawkeye, save me, as she's being knocked unconscious. 
But somehow Iron Man comes out of this issue never having any idea that Black Widow had anything to do with this and not knowing that Black Widow was ever there, even though she is calling out Hawkeye, save me. Iron Man does not hear this. And I don't know why Lee or Heck felt it important to get through this whole issue without Iron Man being aware of the presence of Black Widow. That's it how could, they do it. It didn't occur to them that he never actually sees her, but I don't know. Maybe they just wanted that to be a big reveal in a future issue where he realizes, hey, these two villains are working together and they didn't want him to realize it then. Hawkeye and Black Widow get in a boat together and get off in the fog. And I think Heck, as Penciler and Inker, does a really nice job with the fog. And yes. the top panel of the final page where Iron Man watches him go off in a boat, not only is it really effective fog and you really feel like oh, you know, he really can't follow that boat. That is really a thick fog. He would have a hard time chasing after them. But they almost, heck, is making it believable that he wouldn't be able to tell who was on that boat. The main reason he can't pursue them isn't just because of the fog, but because they are also really, really close to LaGuardia Airport. <laughs> and so if he's trying to fly around to catch up with the boat, it's right where planes are landing, where you do that big approach over the water and then just sort of land right on the end of the runway that sticks out in the water. So he can't go flying to look for them, so he lets them go off. And we see a shot at the very end of the book that looks very much like something out of the Hulk TV show from back in the yeah. 80s. <laughs> with him walking off forlornly in the distance on a beach. I kind of like Hawkeye, so I like the introduction of him here. I like the way that Heck handles him visually, particularly when he has his mask off. I think his face has a lot of character in this. Yeah, I agree. Heck has some good fun with some of the textures, whether it's this fog on the last page or that big slag bucket on the first page. It's a middling story, but uh, it definitely has its high point. Obviously, this is a monumentous issue. This is Hawkeye will become one of the major Marvel characters from this point going forward. And they sort of seem to know right away. They're like, he'll serve some time as an Iron Man villain, but he's got bigger things in his future. And right away, they're leaving it unclear whether or not he ever really even intended to be a villain. They're setting him up to switch via hero later on. Like they clearly know this is an introduction of a major character. You can tell from how prominently he is featured on the cover and that they even teased his appearance in the last issue. They know they've got something here. And this will indeed be someone who will eventually get his own television series up in the modern day. This is someone who will go on to be a major character. And that's not inconceivable from the way he's introduced here. This story makes him seem like someone who could eventually become a hero, could eventually become a major character. Yeah, I'm not sure that I necessarily buy that they knew that this was a special kind of character that they were introducing because they have that over-the-top kind of introduction for lots of lame characters. I mean, <laughs> that's certainly true. The introduction of the Beatle, you know, oh, you've never seen a villain like this. Kind of thing. <laughs> Just, well, yeah, we haven't. It's got three fingers and suction cups, but I mean, you know. <laughs> like Beatles do. Okay, I will quickly wrap up Tales of the Watcher here. So Tales of the Watcher, the Watcher's power. We're once again going to have another deep dive into the various parameters that he has on himself to act. There is a military force of aliens coming to a particular solar system in order to do some conquest. They find the Watcher on one of the planets as the only creature on this one planet. So the leader of this group knows who the Watcher is. They recognize that his power is almost without limit. The leader says, For this majestic being has sworn never to interfere in the affairs of others. He is bound only to observe and record cosmic events. Is that not so, Watcher? And he says, It is true. I have sworn never to interfere in the destiny of other races. I must never tamper with the natural working of fate. And they say, then we can attack and plunder planet T-37X without interference. Set up the Delta Ray Cannon. They go to destroy this other world so they can strip mine it for materials. But then the Watcher turns them into negative beings. It was actually very similar to an early issue of Thor. And sends them off into space. They end up landing on this primitive volcanic world inhabited by savage metal beasts. And they're saying, but why? Why did the Watcher punish us when he is sworn not to interfere in the destinies of others? And then, as if in answer, a strange majestic voice echoes over the primordial planet. It is true that I have sworn never to interfere in the destiny of other races, but planet T-37X does not house another race. It is the ancient home planet of the Watcher. 
Thus does fate work in mysterious ways. It is not given to many beings to be able to save their own people, but I am different, for I am the Watcher. They're finding these interesting different ways that he can get around the original premise they've set for him, either being active by being passive, or this is an exception that we're not just sort of making up, but it does fit within the rules that we already set. And so, yeah, it's a fun story. It's a fun twist. It's like, oh, you can't protect other races, so we're going to destroy this planet. Aha, but it's not another race. That's my race, suckers. And so, yeah, <laughs> he wipes about, we should mention this story is Story Pop by Stanley, script and art by later Lieber and King by George Bell. Lieber and Bell do a great job with the planet of savage metal beasts yes. filled with volcanoes going off. Really seems like an unpleasant place to be sentenced. <laughs> really. <laughs> Really not a place you want to be, whether you're a positive being or a negative being. They're not having a good time. This is a really fun story. Certainly, Lieber and Bell are not a duo for the ages, but even so, they managed to do well enough with the art, and Lieber has a lot of fun with the story. I think it's great. So then let's move on to Tales to Astonish, and you are taking this one. Tales to Astonish, number 59, The Incredible Hulk Battles Giant Man. Special bonus feature, let's talk about Hank and Chan. So this is a huge issue in the history of Tales to Astonish. We have a guest star in the Giant Man Wasp story, and it is the Hulk. But this is what is known in the TV industry as a backdoor pilot. They'll have an episode of a TV show, and they'll be like, hey, let's visit this other person and find out about their life. And then you find out oh, they were really setting up that other person to spin off into their own series. Indeed, they want to relaunch the Hulk back in his own series as the back half of Tales to Astonish from this point on. Starting with the next issue, Tales to Astonish number 60, this book will be split between Giant Man and the Wasp in the front half and the Hulk in the back half. I don't remember, maybe those two are actually reversed. They are sort of setting us up for that. By first, they're having an issue in which we have the Hulk appearing in the Giant Man and the Wasp tale. And this is not the last time they're going to have sort of a backdoor pilot for some of these books that end up being split in two. When Captain America is brought into Tales of Suspense with Iron Man, it starts with a big Iron Man story where the two of them fight. So this seems to be something that Lee finds to be a good idea. Rapidly written by Stan Lee, dashingly drawn by Dick Ayers, instantly inked by Paul Redman, lazily lettered by Art Simak. Poor Art Simak always gets the worst of these things. I don't know why. I I really think that Art Simak writes those himself. I I, I would like to believe that. Generally speaking, I have been unimpressed with the Ayers-Reinman team on this book, but a nice first page of the Avengers all working out on workout equipment while watching a film strip of Spider-Man fighting the Hulk. So an action-packed first page, if ever there was one. Now, let let me point out that the whole point of that battle between Spider-Man and the Hulk is that Green Goblin lured him out away from the cameras in order to try to waylay him. That's where Spider-Man fought the Hulk, out there away from the cameras. So how there is a newsreel (laughs) of this fight, uh, I'm not entirely sure. That is an excellent question. The Avengers head home, we see Giant Man continuing to watch the film strip of the Hulk and thinking like, I feel like I should track down the Hulk and really get him to join the team. We reiterate something from a previous issue that Giant Man can now shrink or grow just by thinking about it, but Jan cannot. And in fact, Jan can only shrink or grow when Giant Man thinks about it. Says, don't bother taking a growth capsule, honey. I'll think you back to normal size just as I do for myself. And she thinks, Henry J. Pym, I asked you not to do that. You're just showing off your new cybernetic mental size control, that's all. And they will also reiterate this in the backup feature that Hank now controls when Jan shrinks or grows and she has no control over it, which is just, of all the humiliations Jan has suffered in this book, feels like the most humiliating of all. They go home, wolf whistlers are wolf whistling at Jan, giant man then grows giant and hangs them up by long PJs that are on a clothesline. The human top happens to just see this out of his own window. He says, oh, I'm glad I spotted them. I'm going to follow along behind them. It turns out they are going out west to go try to track down the Hulk. The human top is at first following them by spinning around so fast they can't be seen. And then eventually he realizes he doesn't have to because he says, it's a good thing I'm so average looking. I don't even have to disguise myself. Turns out the human top is basic, that he is an extremely average person and can follow his two greatest enemies and they have no idea who's following them. They go out west. They're looking for the Hulk. They've tracked down Thunderbolt Ross. Thunderbolt Ross says he doesn't know. They ask Bruce Banner. Bruce Banner says he doesn't know. Then Bruce Banner drives off into the night. Of course, gets so upset he turns into the Hulk. Of course, Betty finds the wrecked Jeep and says, oh, the Hulk must have kidnapped Bruce Banner, which of course is always her foolish assumption in these cases. 
the Hulk is jumping around, the human top is out there. Now, they brag about on the cover of this issue, this is probably the only story ever drawn in which the hero, Giant Man, never sees our unexpected mystery villain. So they just thought it would be sort of fun to have Giant Man never even be aware that the human top was involved in this whole sort of story. So they've got the human top doing what he can to egg on this fight between Giant Man and the Hulk without Giant Man ever realizing it's going on. Giant Man realizes that the Hulk is going to attack this town. He goes to probably the most fun thing in this story is he takes a billboard and wraps it up to be a megaphone. What's the company the billboard is, uh, oh, is advertising? I <laughs> So a couple issues ago in Spider-Man, there was the lead it parking garage. Here, I didn't even put this together. There is an ad for Stan Dick Motor Oil. So, of course, this issue was written by Stanley, drawn by Dick Ayers. So they have Stan Dick Motor Oil, best for your car. And he turns that into a megaphone and tells everyone to evacuate the town. Human Top is egging on the Hulk. The Hulk thinks there's nothing at all weird about a human tornado egging him on and then stops spinning just long enough to go like, if you're looking for Giant Man, he's over there. And the Hulk's like, okay, giant spinning tornado, that's fine. And then the human George, the human top goes up to Thunderbolt Ross. And again, Thunderbolt Ross, not at all phased by this. He comes up there still spinning and says, I've come to warn you, the Hulk is in the town ahead of you. Thunderbolt Ross is like, the Hulk, are you certain man? Spinning man? And he's like, yes, sir, the entire town's been evacuated. It's empty except for the Hulk. And Thunderbolt Ross completely unfazed, says, if what you say is true, this is my one chance to stop that rampaging madness for good. Of course, Thunderbolt Ross tries to send a gigantic missile to the town. We have a bit where the Wasp is trying nuclear. to use the missile in a bit that is- A nuclear warhead. A nuclear is warhead. Going, is going to nuke the town. <laughs> and we get a bit that is exactly like the Wasp origin story from the MCU, where she is attached to a missile and can't shrink down enough to pry it open. But in this case, she gives up, cybernetically tells Hank to deal with it. Hank says, I can't deal with it. I'll send the Hulk to deal with it. He sends the Hulk up, who saves the town and deflects the nuclear explosion. He ends up turning back into Bruce. Betty finds him, is convinced she has saved him from the Hulk because, oh, Betty, you're never going to figure this out, are you? A giant man gives up on recruiting the Hulk to rejoin the Avengers, goes back to the Avengers, decides not to tell the Avengers any of this has gone on. And Thor is saying, then nobody has anything to report. And Giant Man says, oh, well, that's the way the mop flops. I guess we can't expect to have a rip-snorting adventure every time we step out the door. At which point the Wasp says, blue eyes, you're a caution. Which is, yeah. I've been uh, reading I, I mean, I, I've heard of like, you're a riot, but you're a caution? Yeah, that's, that's a, a new caution. one on me. I've been reading a lot of Roy Thomas adventures to my son. The 60s hip mod lingo in... The Roy Thomas Avengers is, is so strange. They all talk in such a bizarrely affected way. Ultimately, Roy Thomas would go beyond anything Stanley could ever dream of in terms of hip dialogue, but the hip dialogue already pretty bizarre. Like, blue eyes, you're a caution. Is that supposed to be 60s lingo? Is that 50s lingo? Is that 40s lingo? What <laughs> is that? Who ever said to somebody, you're a caution? I don't know. I don't know where this is coming from. So well, I, I'm pretty sure that Jan said it to Hank once. So I was hoping that we would get one last wasp story and the cover sort of seems to promise there's going to be one last wasp story, but there's not. We just get this sort of page filler, five pages at the end of a giant man bonus special feature. Let's learn about Hank and Jan, where they reiterate that he has to do all the thinking to make her shrink and grow. And they show off their various weapons and what they do. And of course, another great cutaway view of their headquarters. And they reiterate all the bizarre ways he has of getting around. They show his little cellophane chariot that he has ants pull him around in and they show his bizarre sort of sky hook loops in that he uses to hoist himself out of and back into his penthouse apartment and then next issue it's gonna have oh so that was the last solo wasp story that wonderful story we have as issue where she defeated the magician and then pretended to hank like she hadn't so he would take her in his arms a really fun feminist feeling story and we did not acknowledge at the time because we hadn't realized yet that that was our last really ever <laughs> solo Janet wasp. Van Dyme solo wasp adventure. And she would never even get a one shot. She would never even get a miniseries. That was really it. I'm going to take the moment to retroactively go back now and say that was a shame that that was the last we would ever see of Janet Van Dyne having her own solo adventures. And that was a nice story to go out on. This is lame that we don't get a wasp story in this issue. Generally speaking, I think this issue works just fine as a backdoor pilot for reintroducing the idea of solo Hulk stories. But the whole conceit of the story that he doesn't know the human top is egging everybody on is sort of a bizarre conceit that just seems to 
exists just to live up to the dare of the cover and doesn't actually serve the story in any way. I don't know why he can't have just realized all this was going on. Truly bizarre how neither the Hulk nor Thunder Walt Ross thinks there's anything weird about this spinning top man telling them things out in the middle of the desert. I think this is the first time we're introduced to the human top's ability to somehow through his spinning shoot out speed blasts, as he calls them. Yes. This is something that he will do much more when he becomes whirlwind. Uh, he usually has this thing where he sticks his hands out and sort of moves them around in circles so much that it ends up creating, you know, these kind of uh, vortexes that can do stuff. But this is, I think, the first time that we have seen that. So, yeah, um, I think, once again, this is a good, as you said, a good introduction to bringing the Hulk back uh, into his own book. And I'm looking forward to seeing that. Oh, next issue. And actually, one of the things I realized is when you were going through the uh, the all about Hank and Jan feature, that wasn't in the uh, Marvel Unlimited version. Oh, really? It just That's ended strange. at page 19. It will end at page 19, except for one sort of in-house ad about the Hulk being in the next issue of Tales to Astonish. Uh, but yeah, they just got rid of it. Okay. Well, yeah. it's that's fun. <laughs> no great tragedy that you didn't get to read that. We are going to move on to X-Men number seven, still in September of 1964. The cover promises us that the blob will be returning, and it also shows the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants hanging out in the foreground there, since the uh, heroes are in the background. Written with all the spellbinding skill of Stan Lee. Drawn with all the titanic talent of Jack Kirby. Inked with all the vibrant verve of Chick Stone. Lettered with all the words spelled right by Art Simon. <laughs> we begin this issue with an actual graduation ceremony for the X-Men. On the first page, we have X-Men... The Return of the Bob and Artie Simek, he does his normal jagged lettering for the return of the, and then he gives the Bob his own little logo for the first time for the word Bob. I guess it's on the cover as well. I love Artie Simek's Blob logo with the blobby letters of Blob. Yes, <laughs> it looks very blobby. We had been told in the previous issue of X-Men that they were now graduating, which seems like a very strange decision for the creators yes. to make here since it sort of gets rid of the entire conceit of the book. Yes. But then we're having an actual graduation ceremony here, and on the splash page, it looks for all the world like Professor X is standing up in front of the students for that photo. <laughs> yes, it does. Which is a little bit odd. Presumably, Gene was holding him up telekinetically, maybe. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> yes. That's my version of it. So then Professor X lets everybody know, hey, you know what, guys? You're done. You don't need me anymore. I'm going to bounce. You're on your own. And I guess just like have my mansion. I'm not exactly sure how that's supposed to work. This does sort of explain why they are doing this graduation thing. There's this clear sense of like, okay, we made Professor X way too powerful. This book is tremendously unbalanced. What are we going to do about this? We have to have them graduate and then Professor X take off for greener pastures and then they're going to keep going without him, and Scott is going to become leader. This sort of bizarre decision they made last issue to have them graduate so prematurely, one of many, many, many times that they try to come up with a way to write Professor X out of the book. Professor X is taking Scott into the west wing of the mansion. Scott thinks to himself, strange, this is the one section that had been off limits to us. And we get introduced to an early version of Cerebro, I think it's the first time they've called it Cerebro. We've seen something that is a proto-Cerebro, if not the same thing with just yeah. without a name yet. But this is the first time we get a name and we see some of the weird mechanical workings of this thing. Professor X explains that it helps find where mutants are. Scott is taking this information that he is now supposed to be the leader of the X-Men and is being shown these secrets uh, very, very seriously. All of the other X-Men are like, hey, we don't have school anymore. Let's just go out and have some fun. And they ask Scott to come with them. And he's like, nope, I can't do it. I'm now got a lot of responsibility. So you kids go out and have fun. I cannot join. Which is very much the Scott Summers we will know. And that I will more or less, I mean, like is a weird word for it, but have a lot of sympathy for for many, many, many years until they have him leave his wife and kid to uh, go off with his <laughs> girlfriend in the uh, late 80s. <laughs> yes, <laughs> makes him much, much less sympathetic. They can't convince him to go. They go ahead and head on out, and we see him lonely in the 
darkened mansion. And, you know, it's just one of those heavy hangs the crown kind of moments. We then cut to a carnival. There is Magneto. Second time this month, we have got a big circus. And just as Dicko had a lot of fun with the circus in Amazing Spider-Man, Kirby is not to be outdone. And it's going to have just as much circus fun over in the X-Men. The first circus panel we get at the bottom of page seven, there is a truly disturbing clown in the foreground to welcome us to the circus. Yes, that is a great shot. The cowboy on stilts, all sorts of neat stuff going on there. So why is Magneto at the circus in full costume and helmet? (laughs) It's because he has figured out that the blob is there. He wants to recruit the blob to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. We see some demonstrations of the blob's powers. Magneto, that's right. So we still have this idea that Magneto has his own mental powers that have nothing to do with his entanglement with Professor X, an idea that will more or less go away over the years. Magneto uses his powerful mutant mind to begin to probe the blob's brain. And Magneto thinks, strange, there's a mental block there. I cannot penetrate his mind. And if we remember right, Professor X has wiped his brain of information about the X-Men from last time. (laughs) So once again, it was one of those, who's the good guy here? (laughs) You just basically, how many people have you lobotomized so far at the end of an issue? (laughs) He is one of them. Magneto is being annoyed by the, the boss of the carnival. Let's just say that. So Magneto traps him in a cage. And then he yells out, hey, Rube. We learned, I think, in the first Circus of Crime issue with the Hulk, that Hey Rube was, for whatever reason, the old carny call to come and protect one of their own, which is just a weird, weird thing. But apparently they knew this. And so you're at a carnival or your circus. Hey, Rube. All the carnies come by and they try to tackle Magneto. Magneto doesn't even need to do anything because Toad just bounces around and kicks all of them out of the way. Mastermind then makes uh, these guys with the hammers think the hammers have turned into snakes and they freak out. And then that there are volcanoes showing up everywhere. I grew up with Bob as being a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Right. I remember that the Bob was introduced in issue three and the Brotherhood of Mutants was introduced in issue four. And I remember that he was instantly a member. I was surprised it took as long as it did all the way up to issue seven here for them to meet up. And then he's still not going for it. He's And indeed, at the end of this issue, he still won't go for it dude, this is your home, as as Happy Gilmore would later say, this is where you belong, Bob. This is the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but he is not on board. So this fight with Magneto somehow triggers something in Blob's brain to where the mental block is removed, and he suddenly remembers the X-Men are his enemies. He says, okay, maybe I will join Magneto in order to go and fight the X-Men. So Cerebro is able to detect that the mental block has disappeared on the Blob, There is a special blob part of Cerebro, although you say Cerebro, but in fact, poor Stan Lee, who desperately needs an editor on these books, has already forgotten the name of Cerebro. He calls it Cyberno. (laughs) Wait, what? Where? Um, Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's already happened back on page seven. Cerebro was introduced on the bottom of page five. Two pages later on page seven, the X-Men go out to party without Scott and Scott sits at his desk says, now to listen to the steady drone of Cyberno's voice, C-Y-B-E-R-N-O. They fixed that here. It says Cerebro. Okay. Now that you say that, it does look like a slightly different weight of pen where it says Cerebro's voice. For newer listeners of this podcast, it may be a while before we've explained that when we read these books, I cannot stand computer coloring. So I am reading scans of the original comics. I... I'm not attempting to steal anybody's value. I pay for a monthly Marvel Unlimited subscription like anybody else does. I am making sure that I am supporting creators with as much money as I possibly can. However, I can't myself can't stand to read those books. So I am reading versions that I have obtained off the internet, which have the original pages. So occasionally this will run into discrepancies where Steve is reading the Marvel Unlimited versions. And occasionally there will be mistakes that I will spot in the original issue that have then been fixed. In rare occasions, we will find something where something happened to the page before it was scanned in for a computer viewing. And so there's an error on mine that isn't in his. So that's why I didn't know what the heck you were talking about. (laughs) Yes. So then we get 
one of my favorite sequences of early X-Men. Yes, this is delightful. Yeah, Bobby and Hank have gone to a Greenwich Village coffee shop, and it is just beatnik, you know, <laughs> beatnik times a thousand in here. And you've got guys with the goatees and the sunglasses playing their saxophone, and they're like, like looks like a bassoon and a guitar, and you have a woman doing what looks like modern dance while a guy's reading beat poetry and stuff and there's just they, so much stuff going on in there that's so fun well he's reading beat poetry but the woman who is hanging out with hank says do you like the zen poetry bernard is reading big boy the bee says poetry i assumed he was checking a housewife's shopping list aloud and she says he is that's what makes him a genius and we had other people going go cat go as with any time kirby shows the counterculture it's always on the one hand like okay clearly this is a curmudgeonly old guy who grew up during the Depression and never got to go to college, had his college education on the front lines of fighting Hitler. And on the one hand, your first instinct when you read this stuff to go like, oh, Kirby has contempt for these crazy young kids. But it's not contempt. Kirby always has an affection in these things. It's always a complete othering. <laughs> it's always like, this is not me. This is not Jack Kirby. Kirby seems like he is alienated by these modern hip, crazy kids that he portrays but there's always an affection there whenever Kirby tries to show us what the counterculture is up to you know so then the beast finally decides he can't stand to have shoes on and takes off his shoes and socks to allow his giant feet to be free the freaks love this they're like don't move stranger I've got to make a sketch of those feet they should be immortalized on canvas Wait till Bernard sees them he'll write a new poem immediately this can start a whole new cult we'll call ourselves the barefoot beats and then they all lift him up on their shoulders and parade him around the cafe. Clearly supposed to be the Cafe Wa in Greenwich Village. Uh, of course, this is right around the time that Bob Dylan's newfound fame had sort of brought new attention to these Greenwich Village coffee houses. Whenever Bobby is interacting with women, we're always like, will this later be contradicted by Bobby turning out to be gay? And the answer is often no. And here we have the girl that the only person who Bobby shows an interest in is the waitress Zelda, who is wearing jeans, a button-up shirt, and is the very tomboyish waitress. Eventually, he and Hank will end up double dating with Zelda and another woman named Vera, and they'll go out on a number of double dates. You can make your own decision as to whether or not Bobby's relationship with Zelda here is convincing. This is the best counter-argument you're going to get, is right here. Knowing that he eventually turns out to be gay, I have no problem at all with what happens in this issue. I'm like, I'm like, yep, he turns out to be gay. I'm fine with that. <laughs> so uh, Warren shows up to come get them because they're needing to fight the blob and the other bad guys. Apparently, whenever they left the mansion, they had to sign out and say where they were going to be. So that's how Warren was able to find them uh, in the days before cell phones. He comes and gets them. Meanwhile, the barefoot beats are drawing a face on the bottom of Hank's foot. Oh, good. I've got an excuse to go and bounces around the room, come outside and then leaps into the back of Warren's convertible in a nice little sequence. I get the feeling that Jack wishes he could have gone to college. Jack wishes he could have gotten to hang out, you know, because Jack is an artist. He's one of the great artists of all time. You get this sort of wistfulness here of like, gee, it would have been kind of nice to hang out in Greenwich Village with a bunch of beatniks and, you know, live the countercultural life. And I think there was already a little bit of a sense here that the counterculture was into Marvel Comics and was starting to idolize Stan and Jack and yeah. Steve. And, oh, I never got to live that life. There's these kids who are idolizing me now. And, you know, I'm idolizing them. I wish I could have gotten to do that. There is this real affection here for these crazy beatniks. Yeah, like you said, it's, it's sort of a mixture there of almost exasperation with affection. They go get in their ugly tubby helicopter that I do not like. And fortunately, it's about to be destroyed. <laughs> so <laughs> they get in the helicopter and they fly to the old factory out in some outlying area that Magneto apparently owns and has just as a lair. Yes. The X-Men are flying in on their helicopter and then Magneto disassembles the helicopter in midair and they're all falling down except for Warren, of course. A really nice panel of the thing being dismantled in midair. That's the kind of thing that can just turn into a mess, but it's very clear what's going on there. and It's very well done. 
Bobby creates an ice slide to save the non-flying members of the X-Men. We get the X-Men attacking in sequence, like in a kung fu movie where all the bad guys come one at a time to go get their butts kicked by the hero. So the X-Men are making that mistake here. First, Blob takes care of Angel, then the Beast comes in, tries to knock him off balance, and then uh, Blob pins him. Gene comes in and tries to lift him up telekinetically, but we see that his feet remain actually glued to the ground, so he's pulling the ground up like two little mini buttes as he's being lifted up. Blob seems to be handling things quite well here at the moment. In comes Magneto, magnetically throwing some torpedoes around. It actually looks really <laughs> like this is going to be a problem. It's a really well-done yes. panel. Where these no, nice, nicely threatening. Bobby deflects one of them with a little bent ice tube. And apparently, I guess he deflects a couple of them with this tube. But then the third one is not on a trajectory he can do that with. That one, he somehow puts some ice donuts on it. Therefore, it only rolls laterally rather than moving <laughs> forward, which I don't really quite get. But OK, why not? No. Two more torpedoes are coming behind Iceman and he isn't going to be able to get out of the way. So Cyclops destroys the ground underneath Bobby's feet so that he drops below the uh, torpedoes. And Bobby says, oh, wah. <laughs> it's a little weird. O-W-W space W-A-H exclamation point exclamation point. Magneto is realizing the whole torpedo thing just isn't helping at all. And Blob's like, I told you I could handle them. Just get them all over to me and I can take care of them. Hank throws some mud in his face. And then while he is off balance, is able to kick him and actually knock him over for the first time. And Magneto, meanwhile, is using these torpedoes. So it's like a little spinning torpedo barrier just orbiting him here, which is a little bit odd. He tries to shoot Warren in the air with multiple torpedoes. But Warren's like, I'm used to the danger room. I mean, Professor X is trying to kill me all the time. <laughs> you know, this is not anything for me. But then he flies too close to the ground and Pietro is able to go ahead and knock him for a loop. Iceman goes ahead and puts Blob in a giant ice cube. Kind of neat. But then he is eventually able to just flex his body in a way that goes ahead and shatters the ice cube. Yeah, at that point, Magneto has gone back to the torpedoes. He realizes, oh, okay, they're all in one group. So now my torpedoes can just go ahead and blow them all up. The rest of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is like, dude, the blob is right there with them. Weren't we right. just trying to recruit him? Magneto doesn't care. So he shoots these torpedoes and they hit the blob and the blob actually shields the X-Men from the blast. I don't know how much longer Wanda and Pietro are in the Brotherhood, but not much longer. And I think this is one of the real nails in the coffin for their loyalty to Magneto. So then uh, Magneto, of course, blames the blob for everything. He's the one who messed up his plans. And then they all jump into the Magna car. Apparently, Magneto has some sort of magnetic floating car that everybody piles into. The X-Men are like, Blob, obviously they ran out on you, so why don't you join us? We've tried to recruit you earlier. We're still willing to have you. Obviously, these guys aren't going to treat you well, so come along with us. But nope, he's a loner. He wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't trust anybody whatsoever. He didn't want anything to do with mutants or anything else. He's just going to go. And then they're like sympathetic to him and says, ridiculous as it may seem, I almost find myself pitying that tragic human behemoth I think of. The Bob is being someone who, as I said, you know, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is his home. Yeah. They managed to get some actual pathos out of this. I have no hate left in me. I'm just weary. I'm going back to the only place where I belong, to the Cardi. I've lived a sideshow freak, and that's how I'll die. Much like the Beast, I'm shocked at my sympathy towards the Bob here. Yes. Yeah. Even without <laughs> having Professor X wipe his mind, he still realizes he has to just slink back to the carnival here. I don't know how far outside of New York they are or outside of Westchester they are at this point, but <laughs> they then realize their helicopter they got there with has been utterly destroyed. And how are they getting back? <laughs> yes, they actually make a point that they don't have pockets for money. And so they can't even place a phone call in a phone booth. Warren has to fly out somewhere and hail a taxi to come and get them in full costume and presumably take them back to their secret headquarters. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> in full costume. Yeah, who knows how that's going to work out. At least they acknowledge that, you know, we don't know how they're getting home. I like this issue. I like what they did with the blob here. It is somewhat inconsistent with, as you said, his portrayal in the 80s, which was comics of our youth. But I like it. I think it's really well done. We do have some real sympathy for him. I love the Beatnik Cafe. As I said, probably my favorite moment in the Kirby X-Men. And, you know, I love how they kind of introduce Scott, the very serious, very isolated, very alone kind of character that he is for many, many years to come. Yes. That feels very real and very heavy. Once again, we've got sort of just a moving the pieces around the board issue. It's like, well, we've already had them fight Bob in a circus. Let's have that happen again. But this time, let's go ahead and mix that up with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants who weren't involved last time. It's mixing up familiar elements, but they're experimenting with all sorts of new things. They're saying, let's take Professor X out of the book. Let's have him move on. Let's have Scott as the leader of the X-Men and them not having this big deus ex machina. They can just helicopter in at the end of every issue to wrap it all up with <laughs> to lobotomize whoever the bad guy was lobotomize whoever the bad guys are here and i think ultimately that's a good idea although it will never work for long this book will be trying to escape from professor x for the next 500 issues and will never escape from him for long but yes i certainly agree with you that the thing that makes this issue so wonderful is the grunge village cafe which we will have not seen the last of. we will get to go back to the grunge village cafe although i'm not sure they'll ever have as much fun with it later as they do here painting the beast foot is just delightful so meanwhile i guess it's time to move on to our final issue of this month the avengers yes now one thing about this issue of the avengers mm-hmm. i purchased a copy of this at one point in middle school as a present for my friend Ian, who is another comics fan. I just went in, I was just trying to find something that wasn't too expensive, but that was some old back issue. So anyway, I bought a copy of this and I owned it for, you know, maybe a week. <laughs> I never knew this. I, yeah. <laughs> this is this is news to me. How much was it? it? 10 bucks. It was 10 bucks. Wow. How nice was it? I have no, no memory whatsoever. But to spend 10 bucks on this issue these days, it would have to be in pretty awful shape. It would have to have been <laughs> actually used as toilet paper in order to be selling for $10. Probably, you know, before they had the 10-point scale with decimal points in it like they do now. Just the, what, mint, near mint, fine. It was probably somewhere around good to very good condition, yes. I imagine. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, we're reading The Avengers number 8. Kang the Conqueror. This is Kang destined to rank as one of the most unique villains of all time. And wait till you learn his surprising identity. So this is true. Kang put yep. on to be one of the all-time great villains. They are currently building up to Avengers number five in the MCU, which is going to start Kang. It's going to be called the Kang Dynasty. As with the introduction of Green Goblin a couple issues ago in Spider-Man, this is in fact a fairly underwhelming issue. This is a fairly underwhelming introduction to his character does not seem on the inside of this book to live up to the hype he has on the cover of being one of the all-time great villains. Let me give my perspective on that. I think that he comes across better here than in some of his later appearances in the Avengers, in that Stan Lee seems to think of another time as being no different from another location, whereas that's not true. What that ends up meaning is that Kang has to be terrible at time travel in order for him not to just utterly destroy the Avengers, right? He has to not really understand the power of his power, or else if he did, he would just be unstoppable. In the future, that I think is going to end up becoming a problem for him. Yeah. In my opinion. Kang is never like, oh, something just went wrong. I'll go back in time and make it right. There's never any sort of that fine detail of any kind when they fight Kang. He just happens right. to be a warlord from the future, but he is treated no differently than if he were a warlord from another planet. He is certainly not using time travel in any clever ways. Let's go ahead and jump into the issue here. Written by Stan Lee, our answer to Victor Hugo. Illustrated by Jack Kirby, our answer to Rembrandt. Inked by Dick Ayers, our answer to automation. <laughs> Lettered yes. by Sam Rosen, our answer to Artie Simak. <laughs> Which I find funny, but I do take the inker being an answer to automation a little bit personally. (laughs) Exactly. I always liked Ayers on Kirby more than you did. I think it's nice to having Ayers on Kirby. He does a very good job on this one, though. 
I will say this is the Ayers Kirby combination I like. Starting way right here on the first page, I think this is a beautiful splash page of the Avengers walking down the street surrounded by a crowd, which is one of the hardest things in the world to draw, where you've got to draw all these unique faces on this crowd. It's also really nicely colored. You get a real nice sense of perspective in this opening page. Obviously, it's been recolored in the version you're looking at, but the coloring in this one, you get a really beautiful sense of the sort of three levels of action. They got that effect here, maybe a little different. The second page, they're watching a film strip they have been sent showing that someone named Kang has invaded. It's not ever exactly clear to me where this is that Kang has landed. A I guess. lonely wooded area in Virginia. Okay. They watch in the film strip King Land, and they're like, yeah, that guy looks bad. Let's go fly there and take care of him. So they find Kang lounging on an invisible beanbag chair. Yes. Later, they'll be like, oh, who is Kang a secret descendant of? It's like, well, clearly he's a secret senator of the wizard, because that's <laughs> the wizard's invisible beanbag chair that we've seen him lounging on before in Human Torch comics. They go up to Kang. Hey, Kang, we don't like you. We're going to stop you. And he's like, no, you won't. He sends Thor's hammer to subspace, which shows right away that he's badass. Gorgeous panel on the bottom of page six very much looks like a Steve Rude panel. Oh, yeah. What it kind of looks like is Darwin Cook. Kind of looks like the New Frontier book. Too, yeah. We try to be very careful to read the books in order, but there's a reference back to something that happened in Fantastic Four Annual Number Two, which, according to my sources, hasn't come out yet. So we haven't covered it yet on this podcast. According to Marvel Unlimited, it came out basically at the same time. He explains that he is Ramatat from Fantastic Four number 18, which is one of the all-time great Marvel comic books. He then shows up in a comic we have not read yet, Fantastic Four Annual number two, and ran into Doctor Doom. He ends up going into the future, where he becomes warlord of the future, and says, and so possessing the greatest scientific knowledge of all time, armed with weapons against which you have no defense, I proclaim myself king, the first ruler of the 20th century. He gets in a big fight with the Avengers, the Wasp, tries to sneak into his helmet, but gets caught. He then says, I'm going to capture all of the Avengers that matter and put them away in my ship. The only two Avengers who are left are the Wasp and Rick Jones, which could be the start of a good story if then she is the one who takes advantage of this and defeats him. But of course she doesn't. He takes the four male Avengers, turns Thor back into Don Blake, freezes them in force rays, keeps him prisoner on his ship. So then she says, I'll return to Avengers headquarters and see if I can find any weapons which might defeat Kang. Rick says, I'll get my team brigade to help me with my plan to free the Avengers. Meanwhile, Kang is issuing all these decrees to the world. And then we see at the United Nations, someone saying, then it is agreed that we forget past differences and unite against Kang, the common enemy. And everyone in the crowd at the United Nations is saying yes, but it shows them saying individually, da, yes, see, we, aso, righto. And so I don't see an ah, so if that's in there, they edited that out <laughs> and said it's H-A-I. Hi. But I thought it was just funny that presumably it's the British person who's saying right Yes. As if that oh, yeah, is the British English version of saying yes. But that's <laughs> funny that they've got the Chinese person saying ah, so H space S-O and they've changed that to hi. So then at this point, King is surrounded by all these soldiers who are putting guns at him. But Rick says, like, I know, we'll sneak up on him from the other direction, where there aren't any soldiers. Kang is just standing there looking at some sort of map for some reason, and they run up behind him, and they're like, uh, hey, Kang, we want to go ahead and join you. He says, you are wise behind your ears. You shall become my first personal Earth servants. Now enter my ship and familiarize yourselves with it. So, of course, they enter the ship, quickly figure out how to free the Avengers. Don is able to turn himself into Thor again. That helps quite a bit. The Wasp, meanwhile, has gone back to find a weapon, just going through giant man stuff. Heaven forbid she come up with her own weapon or come up with any sort of clever thing. And of course, when she finds a weapon, she is full size. She finds the weapon. All she needs to do is get herself back out to Virginia full size. But no, she insists on flying in small form and take a bunch of ants along to fly the weapon, which is, of course, always utterly ridiculous. You always picture an actual gun, how many flying ants it would take to lift an actual gun. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and now in this case, it is a little bit like, you know, how is she going to transport herself from New York down to Virginia in the next little bit? So, you know, somehow flying without having to go to an airport or something like that makes sense. Of course, later when the Avengers end up getting the Quinjet, that will make all this stuff much, much easier. Meanwhile, the Avengers are fighting Kang. Jan shows up with a gun, gives it to Hank. Heaven forbid she got to fire it herself. He then shoots 
a big acid canister at Kang. It, it was a special acid-based solvent, which will rot and decay any fabric, any type of wiring or insulation. Kang's suit is becoming all pitted. It will be useless to him. That's pretty badass, shooting him with a big acid canister. But then Kang is able to go ahead and release a bunch of radiation, enough that he can get away. He escapes into time, and he disappears. Stanley is, of course, known for his poetic flourishes at the ends of these issues, so... <laughs> He then goes more extreme than he has ever gone before. Captain America says, he knows if he returns, the Avengers will be waiting. The Avengers all just stand there looking impressive while Stanley says, the Avengers will be waiting. Thus has it ever been. Thus will it ever be. So long as mankind is in jeopardy, so long as the mother planet Earth may be menaced, so long as the forces of evil dare to challenge justice, the Avengers will stand, ready to fight, to sacrifice, to perish, if need be, so that liberty and hope shall ever live in the hearts of men. So it's like, okay, that's a lot. That's really going far with this. But it's like, the Avengers will be waiting. Thus has it ever been. It's like, dude, this is issue number eight. You can't remember a time when there were no Avengers? <laughs> I don't know if this bothers me any more than the verbose ending to the Doctor Strange story. That one bothered me more because there was a fantastic visual that it was distracting from. This seems appropriate to the image that Kirby has given. But yes. I mean, yes, it is over the top. I'm not saying <laughs> that it isn't. I'm just saying that between the two of them, I think I'm a little bit more ticked off by by the one in Doctor Strange. No, I would agree. But can we be done with the Teen Brigade? Like the Teen Brigade saving today <laughs> is pretty silly. Of course, Rick now has to go back and rejoin the Hulk book now that the Hulk book is starting up over in Tales to Astonish. I don't remember how much longer Rick continues to hang out with the Avengers. I don't remember if there's any overlap, but I think we may. Sadly, which is to say not sadly at all, being seeing the end of the Team Brigade saving the day in the Avengers. I think that there is a little bit of overlap where we're sort of like, wait a minute, wasn't Rick just in New Mexico? How is he in New York? <laughs> Obviously a huge issue. They're promising this will be a major historic character. Indeed, it is true. He is about to star in a movie that will presumably make a billion dollars. He has already been introduced in the Loki TV show. Do you have any final thoughts on this issue of Avengers? I find Kang's mask more believable in this issue than I ever do ever again. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because in the Avengers Earth's Minus Heroes cartoon, he just has a blue face. In this issue, you could actually see under the mask a little bit. Yeah. Like, no, this is a normal looking dude with a blue mask, which Kirby sells a little more than other artists will. I always have a problem with characters where like the mask goes right up to their lips and then they're moving. Yeah. But like the, uh, Scorpion is one of the ones that I'm really have a problem with on that. Yeah. And Kang is more so than that. I find his mask more believable in this one than I do in others. Yeah. It's nice to get this character introduced. Yes, he'll be a major character. But as I said, it usually turns out that in order for him not to just wipe the floor with anyone in the 20th century, they have to make him very bad at time travel. And also, I remember in stuff in the 80s, we would see Kang going back to his own time, and it was just this post-apocalyptic hellscape. It's just sort of like, oh, so if this guy wasn't just incompetent at time travel, this is what would be happening to Earth. <laughs> you yeah. know, just sort of a, a depressing sort of thing to me in, uh, in certain cases. As we get into more King stories, Ravona will be introduced, which adds mm -hmm. a tragic element to his character, which adds a lot. Right now, he's not very different from Zarko the Tomorrow Man, the Thor right. villain we've seen Thor about quite a few times. And every time we've met him before, we're like, why don't they just go ahead and do King? Indeed, now that we meet King, he's not that different from Zarko. But eventually, he will get a lot of interest in Ravona, and he will get a nice tragic dimension to his character. Ultimately, the best use of King they get is the Council of Kangs and this idea of all these uh, potential variants, which then became a natural way for Loki to be the show that introduced Kang because the idea of people trying to eliminate variants was an idea that was sort of introduced as a Kang idea back in the 80s. But this is a perfectly fine issue. And let's talk about the great tragedy of this issue, which is that it is Kirby's final issue. Something had to give Kirby's been drawn a lot of books recently, he had to give one up, and he tragically decides to give up The Avengers, a book that really needed him. And we are about to embark on 32 painful issues of Don Heck. 
And it is amazing that the Avengers ever survived it. We've got just eight gorgeous issues of Kirby that are going to have to sustain us here for 32 interminable heck issues before we finally get the God Among Men, John Buscema on the book, doing amazing work starting with issue 41. So let's just take a minute to acknowledge what a wonderful one Kirby has had on this book and the horrible tragedy we are about to have of 32 issues in the wilderness. I know I am often the improbable heck defender around here, but we are starting to enter the period where I don't really have much I can say in defense of his art. And part of it is that he is not going to be inking himself much going forward. He generally does not come across well when he is not inking himself. I mean, there are occasional exceptions. There's going to be an issue or two where John Romita Sr. inks him that are going to actually be quite beautiful. I think Wally Wood inks him at one point here going in the near future. That was fine. It wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. One way or the other, even though I am usually a defender of Heck, you're going to find me defending Heck less and less going forward here. And uh, Avengers is one of the main reasons why. So once again, thank you, everybody out there in podcast land for listening. We uh, always appreciate any ratings or reviews you can give us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you download us. Please do so. We like to hear from you. Thank you very much. And as I usually say, stay safe out there. Indeed. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.